Amen. There we are. Good morning. Good to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. We've got a sermon this morning that continues the theme that has been the theme for the last number of weeks, the theme of prayer. And in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, which we'll look at, it's the story, really, of Peter's miraculous escape from prison. And so it really breaks into five sections. So I thought, let's have a look at the five sections quickly this morning as kind of an introduction, and we'll follow through them as they go. So we're going to have them on the screen. Number one is the permanent or the persecution of Herod, which resulted in the imprisonment and planned death of Peter. That's in chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Number two, or the second part of the story, is a very simple statement that the church had gathered to pray for Peter's release. The third part of the story is God's miraculous deliverance of Peter, and it is a miraculous deliverance. And fourthly, in that whole passage, we have Peter appears to the people at the prayer meeting who have been praying, 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 praying for him. And then he goes on to the next town to obviously continue his ministry of preaching. And then fifthly, as you look at the whole story, I couldn't help but go back to the fact that the whole story emphasizes our need to learn to really pray. So let's look at those five as we look through the story this morning. The story starts off with King Herod, and there are many Herods in Scripture. don't know if you've noticed them before, but in Matthew chapter 2, there is Herod the Great who tried to kill the baby Jesus, and you know that story. And when Joseph and Mary returned, they left, you remember, they returned to Nazareth, the angel told them that Herod had died. There's another Herod in Matthew chapter 14, Herod Agrippa, who beheaded John the Baptist. This is the kind of Herods that were ruling of the day. In Acts chapter 12, the story which we'll pick up today, we have Herod Agrippa, who had killed already James, had Peter arrested with the intent of absolutely killing him and taking up his also. And then in Acts chapter 26, you have another Herod, Herod Agrippa II, who says very mockingly to Paul, the apostle whom he's talking to at that point, do you think in a short time you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? All of the Herods represent kings in many respects, kings who want to be immortal, who name their sons after them so that they will have another Herod who is reigning following them. And all of the Herods wish to destroy the servants of God for their own political advantage. And thus Herod Agrippa committed Peter to death, and that's the story we'll pick up today. But he had to delay his execution because the Jews had a feast of the Passover, and he couldn't do it during the Passover, so he had to delay it because of the Feast of the Passover. Secondly, 
in the whole story, you've got a very clear, strong emphasis on prayer. The prayer meeting was kept up while Peter was in prison. So kind of picture it in your mind, Peter's in prison, and his end is certain as far as the world is concerned, and the church is gathered to pray. They were praying earnestly, the Scripture says. Now, I'm very well aware that this church is forever talking about fellowship groups and study groups, and you need to join to have fellowship, and we hear it over and over and over again, Sunday after Sunday, nothing wrong with it at all. However, when did you last hear a call for a group of people to gather to pray? And I mean extended prayer. You know, not just a few minutes, two-minute kind of prayer. Lord bless everybody. But for people who really need to be born again, pray for people who need to be born again to be saved, who need to ask God to come into their lives and transform their lives by the power of the living God. Peter's imprisonment produced a gathering of a group of people who really, really, really prayed. The real fact is that anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as Savior is in a very real sense imprisoned by the devil who is at work to keep them from salvation in Jesus Christ. And no wonder Peter writes, therefore, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, Be self-controlled. Be alert. For your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone who may devour. Resist him. Stand in firm in the faith, because you know your brothers throughout the whole world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, Peter ends up with that, who has called you into eternal glory in Jesus Christ, after you suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. We're living in a generation today that states that people should solve their own problems. And we have a multitude of ways to solve your problem on all advertising today. And indeed, we should try to solve our own problems, no argument with that. But we also need to be a people of prayer who believe, who realize, who absolutely believe that prayer works. The story in Acts tells us of people gathered in the house of Mary. And so Acts chapter 12, verse 12 says, And when they dawned on him, that's the miracle of his release, Peter went to the house of Mary. Now, Peter's been released. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Actually, there are three groups of people mentioned in this prayer meeting. Very interesting. Mary, first of all, represents the more influential people of the day. She evidently had a roomy house, and in the early church, homes were often a place for worship. They didn't have buildings like we've got today, but they often worshipped in homes. And that was where people gathered to pray. 
and they gathered in Mary's house to pray. Rhoda is mentioned in the story. She was at the prayer meeting too. She was probably just a maid or a servant in the house, representing the lower class of people, but they'd also gathered to pray. And then there were, the Scripture says, many folk who represented the ordinary folk of the church. They were not special. They were not named, but they were praying. But the Scripture mentioned them, and Jesus commented commented about the effectiveness of prayer. And notice, if you read the Scripture carefully, it said they prayed earnestly. This was not a church gathering of chit-chat together. It was a church who had gathered to pray for a real situation that needed the hand of God. <clears throat> Do you remember Matthew chapter 18, verse 19 tells us that I tell you, if two on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by your Father in heaven. As a Pentecost, they were all together praying for one purpose. And so Acts tells us they were all gathered on the day of Pentecost. They came together in one place to pray. Just think of the power of prayer in Acts chapter 12. Peter was in prison. I mean, this was serious. This is not games. He was in prison awaiting death. But God was still in control of everything and would in due time perform a real miracle. And the fact is that miracles are really the outcome of prayer. And in this case, the simple evidence was that Peter was, was released miraculously. The story tells us. Rhoda went to the door of the house where they were all praying and was so excited seeing Peter outside the door. She opened, she didn't open the door, but she returned to the praying boat and said, Peter's free. In other words, prayer's been answered. It's a miracle. It was a miraculous deliverance, very clearly. An old Puritan, Thomas Watson, once said the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Prayer is important. And you cannot disconnect the work of God from the prayer of real believers. John Wesley, great preacher of the old days, said, God does nothing except in answer to prayer. And Luke said that Peter's release from prison was a result of the church's prayer. The church had been crying out to God, hour after hour, pleading for Peter as he lay in prison. When was the last time you heard the house of God filled with God's people, broken and burdened in prayer, asking for the Lord to intervene? Now, note what Scripture says. The story tells us very plainly. In Acts chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, the night before Herod was to bring him, that's Peter, to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. They were bound, both arms, to the soldiers. And sentries stood to guard the entrance. And suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared 
and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up and said, get up. And the chains fell off. Now, humanly speaking, Peter's case was hopeless. He was surrounded by guards, and he was fast asleep. Dare I ask you, would you have been asleep in that kind of situation? But Peter was fast asleep. But have you ever stopped to realize the absolute biblical truth that is illustrated here, that all unsaved people, people who do not know Jesus Christ, whoever they are, wherever they are, are actually chained to sin, unable to release themselves, and tragically, some are even asleep in sin, insensitive to sin, until God by the Holy Spirit breaks the shackles and sets them free. This really gives us a clear picture of God's work in salvation. Only God, God, this only God can free a man or a woman from the shackles of sin so they can be saved and follow Jesus. And notice the miracle again is simply recorded in Scripture. I mean, it's there for all of us to read carefully. Acts chapter 12 tells us, the angel said to him, he's in prison, put on your clothes and your sandals. And he did so. He said, wrap the cloak around you and follow me, the angel said. And Peter followed him out of prison, and he had no idea what the angel was doing or what was really happening. And he thought he was seeing a vision. And they passed the first and the second gate, and the second guard came to the iron gate that led to the city, and it opened to them by itself. And they went through it, and when he'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. I mean, can you imagine the story? It's real. It's absolute. You see, miracles on earth are always the outcome of the power of God in heaven. Listen to the prayer and the agony and the seriousness of their prayer in Acts chapter 12, when the people cried out for people's release, and subsequently God intervened in this New Testament church crisis. Now, perhaps this morning we've got people here, I don't know you all, perhaps we've got people here who are actually still bound by sin. Or you know someone who is indeed bound by sin, who really needs to stop trying to work themselves out of the situation, but rather reaching up to God who is able to release them from sin. We need to sing the old hymn over and over again. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Oh, help me now, my Savior. I come to you. Some of you, and this is my guess anyway, some of you have difficulty in believing in miracles. Maybe you've never really seen a miracle in your own life, and you really got difficulty. You say, yeah, 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 we talk about them. But I really have some difficulty in understanding miracles. Let me share with you two stories quickly this morning. Sajir Sajir Singh, who is a missionary on the Tibetan border of Tibet, and my father-in-law spent his life in missionary work in Tibet, so I know quite a bit about Tibet. However, on one occasion, by order of the chief lama of that particular Tibetan community, this man, Sajir Sajir Singh, was thrown into a dry well. 
The lid that had been there was placed on top of the well, secured by a lock so he couldn't escape. His crime was simply that he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dr. F.J. Bruce tells the story in this way. Here he was left to die, as many before him, whose bones and rotting flesh lay on the bottom of the well. On the third night, when he'd been crying out to God in prayer, he heard someone unlocking the lid of the well and removing it, and a voice telling him, take hold of the rope, which was being lowered into the pit. And he did so. He was glad to find a loop in the bottom of the rope in which he could place his foot for his right arm had been injured in the battle before when he was thrown down. He was drawn up, and he looked around to thank his rescuer, and he could find the trace of Newman. The fresh air revived him, his injured arm felt whole again, and when morning came, he returned to the city where he had been arrested and continued preaching. The news was brought to the Lama, the man who had thrown him down the well for preaching. And again, Sajjusudja Singh was brought before the Lama. And he said, how did he get out? And he told his story very simply. And the Lama declared very angrily that someone must have gotten the key and let him out. And they made a search for the key, only to find that the key was attached to the Lama's belt. God does miracles. When folk hear prayers and really pray to God, the answers are often unusual and undeniable. Partnership in prayer involves people who will pray. And the question I ask you this morning, I've asked myself lots of times, are we involved in this kind of glorious partnership? God is always looking for recruits. Will you say this morning, Lord, here I am. Use me. But some of you are saying right now, and I'm guessing, but I'm pretty sure, oh yeah, preacher, that's an old, old story, and you weren't there. And you don't know the people. But it's a good story. Absolutely correct. But let me share with you a second story that I know personally very well. In 1981, that's quite a ways back, I was sitting in my office in Saskatoon Bible College. And Dr. Ken Birch, who was the president at that time, brought a man into my office, very rugged man, big, well-built man, brought him into my office and said to me, and I'm sitting at my desk, you better listen and talk to him. And Ken Butch disappeared, and I was left with this man. It was a man that now I have known and grown to love over many, many, many years. His name was Lawrence Trafford. Listen to part of his story. And I know him very well. Sherry Dawn was not quite three years old when she stood in Stony Mountain Penitentiary and said, Daddy, come home. 
and bitter agony surged through Lawrence Trafford. He fought back tears. He said, Taddy can't come home. Lawrence was tough. He could take it. But when he heard the steel doors of that maximum security prison outside of Winnipeg, Manitoba, slam shut between his daughter, it was tougher than ever before. Three weeks before his 18th birthday, if you go back a little bit in Lawrence's story, three weeks before his 18th birthday, he'd been arrested. And his childhood at 18 had suddenly ended. The day the police cleaned up Winnipeg and sentenced a longtime drug dealer to life, shot a number of robbers who had robbed a bank, and arrested Trafford, this Lawrence Trafford, for forge and forgery and a multitude of things. And a day later, when he received a 30-year month, a 30-month sentence, no, pardon me, a 30-year sentence, his wife pushed a divorce paper through the bars into his hands. His family was gone. His friends were gone. And the tender embrace of the little girl was gone forever. The prison officials looked at Lawrence's intelligence test scores and said, what's a guy with your intelligence doing here? But his brains were gone. He viewed LSD in those days until his memory was gone. And in the end, he lost all self-control. One night following a drinking spree, he beat a man almost to death and couldn't remember doing it. He could not get bail. He was sentenced to another very long prison sentence. But prison couldn't rehabilitate him. AA couldn't help him. He swore to straighten up, but he couldn't. Lawrence Trafford gave up while others slept. He walked the cell floor crying and wringing his hands. Suicide seemed the only way out. But at this point, in total despair, God went to work. A chaplain in the prison had witnessed him for months. His father and his mother had been praying for him unceasingly. And one night, Lawrence began to write a very bitter letter to his father, totally against God. And suddenly, God's spirit overcame him. <clears throat> he cried out, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Straighten me out. And Lawrence described what happened in these words. This is his words. He said, Jesus suddenly filled me behind the bars of prison, uh, Prince Albert Prison. I became a man instantly free. I was so excited, I rolled over and told my soulmate on the bottom bunk, Jesus has set me free. And since his release in 1981, he has traveled around the world in prisons and churches telling the joys of God's delivering power, a power that God is able to do exceeding abundantly in answer to prayer. It's interesting because this last week I got a letter from Lawrence. I keep touch with him week by week, month by month. And this is his report. And let me just skim it so you know I'm not telling you stories. It's reality. 
Lawrence writes in this one, his speaking schedule is Cuba, 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 Haiti, Haiti, and he's been in Cuba and Haiti for most of the month. He's got pictures on the back of tent crusades in Cuba and tent crusades in Haiti. And the bottom of his letter, and he's been preaching now for year after year after year after year, traveling all through these nations in North Korea. He's got a, an amazing ministry, preaches three times a day wherever he is, and he absolutely does, he's, no, I shouldn't say he does, he sees miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He puts at the bottom, and I thought it's very interesting for today, please pray. Pray for Cuba, because electricity keeps going out. Food is short, gasoline is short, but there are many who need to be saved. Pray for Haiti. The gang violence would stop. The poverty would end. Order the government to do something about it. There are many who need to be saved. Pray for North Korea. There is terrible hunger and poverty. Peace. Pray for peace. Pray for religious freedom. There are many to be saved. Jesus, God, is the answer to prayer. I know Lawrence very well. I'm absolutely amazed because I saw him when he, come, he came into my office just after he got miraculously saved. And he's done, I think anyway, an absolutely amazing ministry over the years. Week after week, month after month, year after year. And God has honored his ministry with amazing stories that I could keep you here with for a whole week and you'd kill me because of it. But he's done amazing stories. He's got amazing stories of the power of God. But fourthly, the Scripture tells us in this passage that Peter, after his miraculous escape from prison, reported to the praying people. And then he left for another Scripture, another city. Listen to the Scripture. Acts chapter 12. And Peter came to himself. This is after God had done the miracle for him. And he said, huh, now I know, without a doubt, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating would happen. And when this dawned on him, he went down to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were gathered praying. If you go down a little further in the story to chapter 12, verse 17 and 18, it says, And Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet in the house where they were praying. And he described how the Lord brought him miraculously, totally miraculously out of prison. Now, tell James and his brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. And in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Fifthly, as I look at this story, I think I, I think we cannot miss the prominent aspect in the story that needs to be absorbed by all of us, the need and the effectiveness of prayer. Remember again the old Puritan, Thomas Watson, said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Remember, you cannot disconnect the work of God from prayer of God. John Wesley said, God does nothing except in answer to prayer. And I take Acts 12, 12 verse 5, the passage we've been looking at, and uh, 
it intends us to realize, obviously, that Peter's escape from prison was the result of the church's prayer. Now, I'm well aware, and I commend the folk of this church who are very, very gracious in feeding the hungry, taking care of children who have no lunch, ministering to the physical needs of so many. And I know the lunch program has finished for this year, and they've had the barbecue for the school children that finished the year of that kind of aspect. And I personally, you may be different than me, but I personally don't know of another church that does such a lot of good work in that kind of aspect. But I want to ask you this morning, what did we do for them spiritually? Does anyone have a list of the names of the people that you've been helping or you've been ministering to or you've been feeding, be they young or old? And have you ever gathered for a prayer meeting to pray for their salvation? Every one of those people that we've helped over the past months or you've helped as a church over the past months, sooner or later, is going to face an eternity. Do we ever help them in that area? You can't read the story of Acts 12 without being conscious of the power of prayer. Peter was in a life-threatening situation, and once the Passover was over, he would be beheaded. That was the action that was coming. He was waiting to be decapitated by Roman soldiers under the orders of Herod, Herod, and death was certain. And the church had gathered to pray. Just think for a moment. If Peter had not been released and had been beheaded, where would he have gone? Probably all of you would answer very quickly. He'd have gone to be with Jesus. He'd been with Jesus for all eternity. But despite the fact, the very clear and undoubted fact that that was true, the church had prayed desperately for him. And God did answer their prayer, and he was released from prison. It simply forcibly tells us that everyone on the face of the earth is going to spend eternity in one of two destinations. Indeed, everyone has a choice, and God has made it possible for everyone to go to heaven. No question about that. John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him should be saved. Whosoever believes in Him should not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Folk, we may not like it, but it's either heaven or hell. When I was much younger... I'd like to be younger, but I'm not. When I was much younger, 
we often heard from the pulpits of our day a conversation between people or preaching on heaven and hell. We used to hear the saying, heaven or hell, which will it be? Where will you spend eternity? I've not heard that phrase for a long, 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 long time. I sort of think that we've forgotten the truth of this fact. I think it's time we realize that every human being will experience three kinds of death and three kinds of life. You say, what's that? Listen carefully. There is obviously a physical death. There is a spiritual death. And there is an eternal death. Only if you find Jesus Christ is there a physical death, a spiritual life, and eternal life. Erwin Lutzer, in his book that he wrote, said, one minute after die tells us where you'll be. He tells us the story. There is a cemetery in Indiana where there's a tombstone with this message engraved on it. And you know tombstones. They don't do it the same now as they used to, but you've seen graveyards, I'm sure. Tombstone with engraving. And the engraving said, Stranger, as you pass by, so once was I. As you know, as I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Another person happened to go through the cemetery evidently and etched another message below that one. It said, to follow you, I'm not prepared until I know which way you went. It really does matter to everyone this morning about eternity. For ourselves, for our loved ones, for our acquaintances, for those we minister to, we must never, 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 never forget that our eternal destination is set while each one of us has physical life. I do not know many of the families or the connections of folk here in church, really, or those who are listening online, or of those in Haida Gwaii. But it'll be my guess, and I think probably a pretty safe guess, that many folk have children or grandchildren or friends who have not committed their lives to Jesus Christ, and therefore they're not saved. And let me point out, it's not a case of being, yes, I'm saved, so what? I mean really saved, biblically saved. Here's my question this morning. How much do we pray for them? Do we know the actual names of the people we've assisted, we've fed, with food week after week, day after day, be they young or be they old? Does the church ever call for a prayer meeting to pray by name? For those unsaved people, how often 
do we weep personally connected with those folk we need them to come into a relationship with God so one day they'll be in heaven people will say oh yes I pray every day but for how long Lord bless my children my grandchildren my friends and my people and help them every week and an everyday preacher well, listen, that kind of prayer or similar prayers take probably 10 to 20 seconds at the most. Which really means, and here's the hard part, it really means either we don't really believe in the power of prayer, or perhaps more tragically, we don't believe in a hell for all eternity for those who do not accept Jesus Christ and what he's done from at Calvary. Folk, whenever people die, they go either to heaven or to hell. There is no other eternal destination. In Acts chapter 12, the folk prayed for Peter simply to be released from prison. Maybe it's time for us to gather as a church, as a group, to pray for people who are unsaved, that we help, or who are related to us in some manner or other. Because if they're not connected with Jesus Christ, and they die, they slip into hell for all eternity. Oh, we don't like talking about heaven and hell. We all want to talk about heaven. I like to talk about heaven too. But the Bible clearly says it's heaven or hell. I'm not criticizing anyone this morning, so please don't go out and say, Hawks criticizes me. I'm not criticizing anyone. But I think somehow we have acted in deeds for others, but have often forgotten that the greatest need is prayer for their salvation. I think it's time to start praying very seriously for miracles. Miracles do happen. I've told you at least two of them this morning which are real. But praying seriously for those who are unsaved that we know that we're connected with, that we're connected with our families or the church or the folk we serve and work with week by week by week by week just as the church did in Acts chapter 12 as they prayed for Peter. Folk, there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Ask yourself this morning, are you concerned about the final destination of those people whom you help, your relatives, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your close friends, when was the last time you prayed and wept for these people? Somehow, somehow, I think we need to add definite individual people to our personal prayer in a very methodical manner, and we need to stop today. Folk, every man, woman, 
boy or girl in the whole world, in any country of the world, in any city of the world, is either going to heaven or to hell. I think we need to start praying much more and realize that eternity lies at the very doorstep of folk. And you and I don't know when that day will come. That we are for certain. Heaven or hell, which will it be? Where will they spend eternity? And the answer from the story of Acts chapter 12 is learn to pray. Specifically, definitively, actively, continuously. For that's the only answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence this morning. And now, everlasting God, the one who created the ends of the earth, who never faints or grows weary, renew your strength and challenge every one of us to the very depth of our heart to part, start praying earnestly for these people so that when the call comes from heaven above they too may rise to an eternity with the living God in Jesus name Amen Folk it's time to pray in sincerity because of an eternity which lies ahead. May God bless you and help you as you think about these things as they permeate through your mind this day and this week. And maybe it'll stir you and me to begin to pray earnestly for those that we know particularly and those that we don't know. And pray by name. I have learned that God knows every one of us by name. You like to be called by your name. All of us do. God never says, bless this bunch of people in church. He knows you by name. And he calls on you and me to pray by name. Because eternity is ahead of every one of us wherever we are. God bless you, encourage you, strengthen you, and challenge you in perhaps a fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. God bless you and be with you.